Now, last week, we finished chapter one of the Gospel of John. And, you know, it was a great lesson uh, out of that chapter on bringing men to Christ. And I showed you how that it was so fitting the, the way that God decided to end that chapter. Because in the beginning, we saw the eternal Christ as God. We saw the Lamb of God. We saw all of those things. And it's a perfect fitting for that chapter as an introduction to the Gospel of John, which we already know was written for the purpose of showing men Christ and getting them saved. And uh, so we talked about the aspect of bringing men to Christ. We talked about how that soul winning, uh, you know, just like our walk and our relationship with Christ, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, it's based on our intimate relationship with the uh, Holy Spirit of God in books like the Song of Solomon, as I showed you that. And how God, you know, called out the first four disciples here. This is different than Matthew. In Matthew 10, he gave you all of the guys. Here he only picks four. And of course, I showed you how that they were, all four were commercial fishermen. And because he's setting up the aspect that we are to be fishers of men when we go to that. Troy, bring that up here. Let me see those. He brought those today to show you. We talked about using different lures to catch people uh, and, as in fishing. And he brought two here to show, me, show us today. This is good. Now this one, look at this. This is a frog. Now look at that puppy. You dragged that across the water and I'll tell you what, alligators and everything is going to come after it. Then this one is a bird that falls in the water and the wings actually flap the splash and a big old lunker of bass will come after that. I'm telling you. See, this is what you do when you, when you win people to Christ. Thank you for the illustration of that today. I appreciate that. And uh, let me know how that works when you get out there. Are you going to try, actually try those and use them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to hear the story on that one. But anyway, we talked about us being fishers of men, how that you fish for fish differently with different baits, and then you do the same thing when you fish for men. And we made the application of how our ministry unfolds itself here of trying to uh, bring men to Christ. Uh, we, went, we walked through the highlights of that chapter. Uh, when we looked at all the parallels, uh, you know, of it and then went back to Acts chapter 8, which is the definitive chapter in the Bible on winning people to Christ. And we saw how that God will prepare us and prepare the people that, you know, that need to be won to Christ. We talked about the aspect of a prepared servant. That'd be you and me. God right now preparing you while he's out there preparing in the heart of an unsaved man and then through the Holy Spirit of God, bringing the two together. We looked how God looks deep inside us even before uh, a man comes to him. And that's why the Bible talks about God's spirit searching the thoughts and intents of the heart in uh, Hebrews chapter 4. And how each of us you know, have been ordained to bring forth fruit and that our fruit should remain, John chapter 15, verse 16. We talked about soul winning, bringing men to Christ. That concept has been completely lost. Like everything else, it's true in Christianity uh, that Christianity is really built on has all been lost today. Uh, just like all the great teachings of the Bible. We've taken the aspect of the soul winning based on an intimate relationship with Christ and made it a program, made it something that some people can do and other people can't. We've completely lost 
the intimacy of a real relationship with Christ today. And you remember, and I've said this many, many times, when you get a Laodicean Bible, which we have today, it'll always produce a Laodicean church. And a Laodicean church will obviously always produce Laodicean Christians. And that will produce a Laodicean mindset of ministry, of doing everything uh, without the real direction of the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. Because none of it really has anything to do with the Bible, as you obviously saw last week and then the week before when we were talking about our relationship. And I've given it to you before. The seven things that you lose when you lose your Bible. And you take those seven things out of Christianity, and Christianity is basically an empty shell. And we've talked about that many times. Now today, we're going to move into chapter 2. And hopefully you'll be able to see how chapter 1 kind of sets itself apart as an introduction. But now into chapter 2, we really begin to get into a study. And again, we will go down doctrinally deep uh, in the book uh, that John writes here. And my, 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 I I, I cannot even begin to tell you the importance of, if you ever want to learn your Bible, it's things like today that you're going to have to get down and understand. And one more time today, we will see and hopefully learn how to use the Bible itself. How that when God gave us the Bible, he gave us the book that contained within it is everything that we need to unlock itself. You really don't need any outside help other than a New Testament local church, which is the process that God uses to unlock it. And you will get laid out for you today what I believe is the single greatest part of unlocking the Bible. And uh, there'll be two parts to this message. This will be part one, and the next time we get together will be part two, and I'll show you how that you put the two together. So I want you to pay attention today, and, you know, we're going to dig it out. We're going to go down here, and I'm going to go slow. I'm going to try to make it as easy for you to understand as I can and that itself is going to be a little task because we're going to talk about some really deep stuff. But I want to be able to break it down for you that anybody can understand it on whatever level you are. I want to give you older folks enough information that you can say, wow, I'm going to dig that out. I want to give you midline people and you baseline people enough to help you really say, hey, you know what, I understand that better now. And then you can, you can build on that. So let's look at John chapter 2. Verse 1, and it says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Pray you'll put us under the blood today that, that Lord, that everything that will be clean and, and right and pure in your sight, that as we open up this book that we all can glean from it, everything that you have for us. We pray for those who are sick today and for our brothers and sisters who are going through some tough times. We pray, Father, that by your spirit, you'll lift them up and hold them up and let them know that we love them, that we're here for them, that anything they would need, we would be willing to do and give them and help them any way that we could. And uh, bless today as we get into this, help these good people to fall in love with the greatest book this world has ever seen. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for our sake we ask it. Amen. Now, let's just look at this for a second. Now, as you would just read this, and again, I'm not interested in just 
diving in here and showing you all this stuff. I, I want to show you how to dig it out. I, you know, I don't do you any favor if I tell you, show you what it is, but I don't show you how to get there. So, as you and I would just read this, this verse, it will, on the surface, just look like a comment in passing of a wedding that took place on, he says in 2-1, and the third day. There was a wedding in a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Now, over in chapter 1, verse 29, you have recorded for you the first day. Then in chapter 1, verse 43, you're told that now it's the second day. So he's giving you a chronological passage here showing you that day one and then there's day two. And now and here it is, the third day, and we're going to go to a wedding, to one. Now seemingly, honestly, just reading it, it uh, doesn't seem like there is much to it. Just a nice story. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, we all like weddings, and, uh, you know, weddings are a joyous time. And so to the average person reading this, it would be, it's a nice little cover story. Put it in here of Jesus going to the wedding and all that he does and, and what a nice time it is. And, uh, but if, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that there are no just, well, nice stories of happy events or even bad events. You know that to be true. They all will picture something and will open up the Bible in an incredible way. Now, this is where you start and put this into the back of your mind about anything that you read in the Bible. Never come to the Bible just like you're reading any other book. Uh, always come to the Bible noting that whatever is in that book, whatever you're reading, God has put it in there for an exact purpose. There's nothing just oh, ho, hum, and this is just a nice wedding that Jesus went to. Uh, you know, I've told you this before, uh, you know, and, and here again, this goes along with this. In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every person, every event, every circumstance, Every situation that you read in the Gospels will deal with and be a picture of something dealing with God and the nation of Israel. So you'll find a woman who had an issue with blood for 12 years. Duh, the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. You'll have a little girl that was dead and she's brought back to life. She's 12 years old. 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, dead, and God's going to restore them and bring them back to life. You got the story of Nicodemus in John 3. Again, more than just a picture of, of God telling a guy he needs to get born again. I'm telling you, you got to begin to discipline yourself in your thinking when it comes to the Bible. That when you get into any place in the Bible, but certainly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've got to operate under the pretense that there's something about every person, every story, every circumstance that will show you Israel's spiritual condition, God dealing with them in some way, shape, or form. And you'll see a few examples of that today, but you've got you to gotta get that in your head. If you're ever going to grasp the Bible on a level that you need to, you have to discipline yourself in your thinking. 
You have to approach the Bible not in a haphazard, sloppy way, but a disciplined way. So buckle your seat belts and, you know, down uh, we're going to go here. Now, I told you last week and several times over the last couple of weeks about God's systematic theology. When God wrote the Bible, he wrote it as its own commentary. There are good commentaries out there that you can get to help you uh, understand things into the Bible, and I'm certainly all for that. But I never fell into the trap that I put those commentaries over the Word of God. In my life, whatever book I read, I don't run it around the Word of God. I run it through the Word of God. And this is where it needs to begin with when it comes to uh, anything in the Bible. And we talked about how that God's systematic theology is based on the seven series. God will do everything he does by seven. Seven in your Bible is the number of perfection. Deuteronomy 32 says he is the rock, his work is perfect. So God then does everything he does by seven. So when he put the Bible together, he made it easy for us. He uses his systematic theology based on what he does in sevens. And that system based on God's design, is what he does. And you will find in the Bible a day system that is absolutely imperative that shows you God's coming day when he is going to come back at the second coming of Christ. We know, we know this, or you should know this, that the theme of the Bible is a kingdom. The Bible is many books. It's a history book. It's a book of life for anybody to get saved. Uh, It's uh, got all kinds of things that it'll do for you. But the Bible is also a political book, first and foremost. Because the theme of the Bible is God establishing a kingdom, a political monarchy. With Jesus Christ as the king potentate sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Now, Everything in the Old Testament is built around that concept. And everything, I know it's hard to see it today, but everything in our world today around us is built around that same concept. Everything. You look at Washington and you look at the world and you look at the political garbage that goes on. I am telling you, people would think that, you know, would have a tough time seeing how that attaches itself to anything in the Bible. It's all based, Old Testament, New Testament, the day and age that we're living in today is still about the establishment of that kingdom and what you're seeing unfolding before your very eyes in the last moments of this last age as the last grains of sand come through that hourglass before God comes back, you're seeing everything set up. And you'll find a day system to understand that in the Bible. And as you lay that day system out, you will find that in the Bible, there are two primary days that you need to learn and understand. Now, I'm not expecting you to grasp all of this today, but I am expecting you to get the fundamental that you walk out of here with a basic concept that you now can work with. And when you start coming through your Bible, looking at the kingdom, looking at the theme of the Bible, which is God establishing that kingdom from the Old Testament nation of Israel in a literal sense, kingdom of heaven, and then into the New Testament through the spiritual sense, the kingdom of God, you're going to find there's two days. 
And the whole Bible is built around these two days. And you miss these two days, you're going to miss a lot. Now, the first day that you're going to find in your Bible will be called the day of Jesus Christ. It'll also be called the day of Christ. You'll find that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 and Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. And let me just say that the day of Jesus Christ will be Jesus Christ's day. What day would that be? That's the rapture of the church. That's when he, Jesus Christ, comes back for his bride. Christ is not coming back for Israel. Christ is coming back for you. But God is coming back for Israel. So, the second day that you're going to find in your Bible will be called the day of the Lord. It's sometimes called the day of God, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. It's sometimes called the day, sometimes called that day, sometimes called the day of the Lord. And you'll find in your Bible, predominantly in the Old Testament, you'll find that phrase one way or the other over 800 times. Why? Because that's the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is the day of the Lord. And of course, guys get that all messed up and, uh, the, and, and those two days are the key to everything else in your Bible. The day of Christ is the day that Christ comes for his bride, the church. The day of God, the day of the Lord is the day that God comes to get his wife, the nation of Israel. And if you don't get those two days separate, understand them, you're not going anywhere with the Bible. Now listen very carefully. I believe that the date for both of those days, the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, I believe they are in the Bible. I had somebody ask the question I didn't get around to answering. It's been several weeks ago. They asked me, they were reading some of my stuff and they wanted me to tell, certainly Bob must know this, would he be willing to tell us the day that he knows that God's coming to come back. Well, obviously, I don't know that. And even if I didn't know that, I wouldn't tell you. Because then you'd all get right just for the wrong reason. So I'll let it come and whack us all at the same time as a thief in the night, if that's okay with you. But no, I don't know that. Nobody knows that. But I understand, and I want you to see that these two days are key. Now, but I believe the dates are in the Bible. Because the Bible, obviously the dates are in God's mind, and if the Word of God is the mind of Christ, then they're in there someplace. I, I don't believe for a second anybody will ever find it. I don't believe the godliest, most spiritual man who knew the Bible better than anybody on the planet, if he ever existed, he would know it. Uh, it's one of those things where Jesus said that no man knoweth the day and the hour, and then the Bible says that when Jesus was on this earth, he didn't know it. Trying to figure that one out. But I do know that Isaiah chapter 42 verse 9 says this. It says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, Old Testament, and new things do I declare what's coming in the future. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. Now that's a great verse. That verse tells me that God is going to tell the body of Christ what's going to happen before it happens. Now, he didn't say that he'll give you the date 
but rather he'll tell you uh, before they come to pass. And I'm going to show you how he does that. And as I said earlier, along with that, he clearly tells us in Matthew 24, 36, that no man knoweth the day and the hour. You hear me talk a lot about understanding. Uh, the word understanding is a, is a, is a very underused word when it comes to the Bible. Most people do not see the power impact of that word. You've heard me say before how that we get knowledge. Knowledge is facts. We get wisdom. Wisdom will be those facts applied. Uh, and then there's understanding. Now, an unsaved man can have the first two. He can have knowledge and he can have wisdom. There's some very wise people out there in life, in business, in real estate, who are going to burn in hell for all of eternity. They are, they, they are wise in what they do, but an unsaved man can never have understanding because understanding will always be God in the equation. Now, the problem today is that most of God's people don't have any understanding either. But Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, of the times and the seasons, brethren... You have no need that I write unto you. You see, we don't ever know the day and the hour, but what we do know and what Paul tells us that we should not be ignorant of and have understanding of is the times and the seasons. Times and seasons, the two ways that God gives us understanding as to where we are at in relationship to those two days. And, you know, the second coming of Christ, that day, the day of the Lord, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 2, you're told that it's like a woman in travail, a woman that's going to, ready to have a baby. And also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, look what he says there. And this is where I read it up here. He said, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now you see where we already get it messed up. I don't know how many times somebody likens to the rapture of Jesus Christ coming as a thief in the night. And they try to base it out of the Bible. They don't understand those two days. The concept of Christ coming as a thief in the night is not the rapture. It's the second coming. And somebody would know that if they understood the difference between those two days. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Here it comes, as travail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're all children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober, for they that sleep, uh, sleep in the night, and they ought be drunken or drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation." 
For God had not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have time to go into this passage. I wish I did this morning, but I'll just make it easy for you. What he's telling them there, he says, you guys should not be ignorant of the times and the seasons that the Lord is coming back. And then he gives you an example of a woman in travail who's going to have a baby. And then he says, you ought to understand these things and know these things. And then he winds up telling him in verse 9 that the church is not going to go through the tribulation period because they are not appointed to wrath, but Israel is. Now, you know why the church is not going through the wrath of the tribulation? I'll tell you why. Because on the cross of Calvary, God poured out his wrath on his son for you and for me. So there's no need for us to go through it again. But Israel is going to have to go through it. Incredible passage. My point is this. Note the times and the seasons. Verse 1, verse 3, a woman in travail. It's like it to a woman with child. We have that uh, situation around here all the time that women are, you know, with child and going to have a baby. And uh, for time and eternity... When a woman would go to the doctor and she'd be uh, told that she's going to have a baby, uh, the doctor would, would give her a due date. And the due date would be the date that the baby is due. Now, most women, and there are exceptions to this, and it's, it's, the exception proves the rule, but most women never get the baby on their due date. It'll come before, come it'll be after, uh, at a period of time, very few women actually hit it on their due date because the doctor doesn't know for sure. He's going on the information you give him, and so he's basing that on that, and that's why it's not an exact deal. But even though you may not know the day and the hour you're going to have that child, believe me, you know when it's getting close. You know when you better not be taken off for Acapulco. You know when you ought to not be getting on an elevator or going to rules of fun on a roller coaster. You know that it's getting close. And I don't need to know the day and the hour of the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. But just like the doctor tells a woman with child, don't go too far from home. It's really close. I'm telling you right now as, as your pastor to my people, don't stray too far from home because it's right around the corner. It's coming. Now, in your Bible, you will have three biblical systems to help us understand the concept of the times and the seasons. The first one will be found in Mark chapter 13. You'll also find it in Isaiah chapter 2, verses, uh, excuse me, 21, verses 11 through 12. And this will be a watch system. And it'll be breaking down a night from 6 o'clock at night to 6 o'clock in the morning into four watches. And those four watches in that story will start at 6 o'clock in the evening and show you the second coming of Christ in the morning. And yet those four watches will line up to church history. The even will start at Ephesus and the morning will start at the, you know, or end at the Laodicea. I mean, it's just that simple. You can put it together. It, it, it covers 2,000 years of history. Just that simple. The second system you're going to find 
is an hour system. And that will be found for you in Matthew chapter 20. That also was based on a 12-hour day. And it's a system that he shows you starting in the morning, going to the evening. It's just opposite of the other one. And he shows you the coming of the Lord based on an hour system. And you can take every one of those 12 hours and line it up to a date in history. Wish I had time to do it this morning, but I don't. Then the third one, and this is the one we want to focus on today. And I will explain this one to you. The third one will be the day system. And there's two aspects for that. There's the seven-day day system. And then there is the three-day day system. So when he says the times and the season, now I'm going to define this for you. So you want to get this. And I'm trying to make this as easy as you can. And I hope I am. I think I am. Um, I mean, I'm getting it. So maybe you ought to too because you're smarter than me. When he says the times and the seasons over there in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, the times that he's talking about will be one of these three. A watch system, an hour system, or a day system. So when you read that times in the Bible, it just says, look at your watch. No, 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 no. It's talking about a direct doctrinal pattern of time found in the Bible in three formats. When he says the times and the season, the times will be those three. The seasons will be what we know from the Bible that are the two key seasons in the Word of God. The first one would be the Feast of Tabernacles, which uh, would be September 22nd, 23rd, someplace in there, which is the birthday of Jesus Christ. The second season would be April, May, somewhere in there, the Feast of the Passovers, which has to do with the rapture, where the Feast of the Tabernacles deal with the second coming. The Passover deals with the rapture, according to the book of Song of Solomon. Now, you want to get that down. I'm trying to make this easy to understand, and I, I don't expect you to get it all down, even though I'm not going a million miles an hour. You're going to have to get this and go back through it again and then get it into your Bible. Now, based on John chapter 2, our text today, and the context of that, and remember now, you can't get into the Bible. You can't do one thing in the Bible, well, read one verse, one chapter, one book, until you establish the context. Let's look at the day system here found in John. And keep, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay them both out for you today, and th- there will be two that we want to look at, the seven-day and the three-day. Great piece of your Bible. Now, here's the first key to, of it. Take your Bibles and turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I want to begin reading there in verse 3. 2 Peter 3, 3. It says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this, they willingly are ignorant of, see, somebody's ignorant. And you're already told that you're not to be ignorant. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's seven things in the Bible in the New Testament that a Christian is told not to be ignorant of. 
I've given them to you before. You might know it was seven. But I'm also going to tell you these are the exact seven things that every child of God you're going to meet in the next 20 years of your life is ignorant of because nobody gets in the Bible anymore. So he says in verse 5, for, for, for this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now, every Bible scholar on the planet 99.9999% of the preachers in this city and, and right along with them, most of their congregation will tell you that the flood that the earth is standing out of here is Noah's flood. Now, you know why they say that? Because they have rejected the great doctrine of Genesis 1, 1 and 2 of the great gap where the whole thing is covered in water. And the reason why they've done that is verse 5, for they are willingly ignorant of it. They choose not to believe that. So now, when they come to this passage, they have to make it Noah's flood. Now, I don't have time to get into it this morning, but um, it's a thing where there's, there's no way on earth, if you even know the basics of the Bible, that this could ever be Noah's flood. And he says, For this they were willingly ignorant of, but by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water. Now, the first thing, I'll just give you this. Look at verse 5. It says, The heavens. There's three heavens. Two of them during this flood were connected with the water. When Noah's flood, it only connected with one heaven, the atmosphere. Clearly, one little S makes all the difference doctrinally in the world, but you're ignorant of it willingly. I mean, you take an S off of any man and now he's not Superman anymore. He's just a man. You take the S off of this and you're in a whole different dispensation. So then you're left to your own willing ignorance and you make it Noah's flood because you've rejected what the Bible teaches. He says, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Now we're talking about the second coming. He's making a comparison between the two. What took place in Genesis 1-1 and what's taking place, going to take place at the second coming. Now here it comes. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Now here's one of the seven. That one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now that's one of the greatest keys in the Bible. And I want you to mark that in your Bible in yellow. If you have a China marker, don't mark it with a magic marker. It'll bleed through. But that's a verse you have to get down. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward and, will, and, and not willing that any should perish, um, uh, uh, but all should come to repentance. Look at the context, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. There it is again. It's the day of the Lord, not the day of Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things which shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hastening unto the coming day of God, second coming, day of the Lord, wherein the heavens shall be uh, being on fire, be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heap. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, once we've established the fact that this is not Noah's flood, which we have, 
uh, we see that he's making a parallel between what happened at the beginning of your Bible in Genesis 1-1 and the second coming, God's judgment. And our key verse, verse 8, says that one day with the Lord will be like a thousand years and a thousand years will be one like day. And this will be our key to it all. And you want to note now that we're not told to be ignorant of this one thing. We're, we're, this one thing is very important. And I already told you that there's seven. Now in our first seven-day system, it will lay out God's total plan for man from Genesis to Revelation. And it will show you that man is going to be on this earth for 6,000 years. And the 7,000 year is going to be the millennial reign of Christ. Adam and Eve are in the garden 6,000 years ago and then the 7,000 is going to be the... Now, and, and here again, this is why in Exodus chapter 38, verse 15, man told the work six days and rest the seventh. It's the pattern. God does everything by sevens. Now, I, I, I got to say this. And, and I can just, you know, I mean, you get outside this room and, and, out, and somebody listens to this later or, or you talk to somebody about this. You know, I can just hear the evolutionists and the scientists and everybody going absolutely crazy with the idea, the ridiculous idea, the absurd idea in the face of science, in the face of anthropology, in the face of, of uh, all of the sciences out there, the ridiculous concept and idea that man has only inhabited planet Earth for 6,000 years. I mean, what about the pith down man? What about the cave man? What about the Java man? I mean, in the 1970s, Dr. Leakey, who was over in Africa, down in the riverbed someplace, he found the first components of a semi-primate human being that was right in the middle of that evolution process from coming from an anthropoid or an ape into a walking upright man. And this great discovery, and this was a female, by the way, and uh, they nicknamed her Lucy. I have no idea. Maybe he was a fan of I Love Lucy. I don't know. They made this complete hypothesis and scientific research, and all the scientists bought into it based on a piece of jawbone and three teeth. That's all they found. They took the three teeth and the jawbone and constructed a skull that said, look, it's not an ape and it's not human. It's somewhere in between. From that, they deduced that she walked, stooped over, but she walked on her feet and was no longer, no longer a, a, a primate, but was now caught in the process and she lived 1.2 million years ago. See how that stuff gets started? So Dr. Leakey says, life started in Africa. My Bible says that life started in the Middle East. 
He says that man evolved, obviously from our finds, man evolved from an ape. And man evolving from a monkey who evolved from some other form of life millions and millions and millions and years ago because the earth has to be here. I remember one time, and this is how they work. One time down in Alabama, they, they, they do what they do, strata. And they, they date the strata by digging down. Say this was, say we dug down from the surface up there and the guy would say, we're down here uh, in this strata here is a million years old. And they make that up based on that's just how they do it. So when they find an article down there or they find a bone or they find something, they'll say that this artifact is a million years old. And you'll say, how do you know that? And they will tell you, because look at the strata we found in it. You will say, how do you know that strata is a million years old? Why? Look at the artifact we found in it. See, it's a reason. It's a reasonable theology, uh, th- thinking that just this evolves around itself. And down in Alabama, they were digging down there, and they they found uh, they found the bones down there. And the guy says, "This is in the strata of sixty million years ago, and this dinosaur lived sixty million years ago." And everybody went, "Ooh, wow!" So they dug down a little deeper, and you know, and they. They, they hit something else and dug it out, and it was a rusty 10-horsepower Johnson outboard motor. It's ridiculous. Dr. Leakey put forth the idea that man, that life started in Africa, and that he became an ape, Lucy. Lucy evolved up to uh, what we are, and I, I got to tell you, I find that pretty interesting and, and, and fascinating. We started out as primates millions of years ago. Through the process of evolution, we now become homo sapiens. And through the process of our society, now we're just a bunch of homos. <laughs> it's, it's an incredible process to me. And if I was a monkey, you know, I don't have to have a PhD to figure it out. Has anybody ever here seen a queer monkey? Has anybody in the history of science, zoology, ever had a transvestite chimpanzee? A chimp who came to the place where he says, uh, you know what, I wasn't born a chimp, a, ch- a chump, I was born a chimp. I, I, you know, no. Have you not figured out yet that there's something wrong with man? That there's a separation between the animal kingdom and man kingdom and trying to put them together is ridiculous when you just study human beings? Has a female chimpanzee ever left her mate chimpanzee for another chimpanzee? I mean, it's absolutely, it sounds good on paper, but when you look at human beings compared to primates and try to make the assertion that we came from them, boy, something changed along the way. And of course, There's something terribly, this is why they don't like the Bible. The Bible destroys that on one simple little fact. 
there's something terribly wrong with man. There's something so wickedly wrong with him that the animals, to put them in the same boat and said, we came from them when they've kept and, re- and followed the law of God. You realize that everything in God's creation obeys the order of creation and the laws of God except one thing, man. Which was a monkey in a banyan tree, and I'm a professor with a PhD. That's where they wanted to come to. Now, Adam and Eve... Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden in 4004 B.C. You say, how do you know that? There's a book that is out that's about that thick. For years and years and years, it was, when it came out in the 1600s, it was written in Latin. Somewhere 50, 60 years ago, they translated it into English. I have a copy of it. And it's a book called Usher's Chronology. Archbishop Usher was a saved man, and he believed the Bible was the Word of God. He started with a fixed point in the Bible in the New Testament with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and he simply ran the genealogies as listed in the Bible back through the Bible itself, and they're all listed for you. Part of them are in Matthew chapter 1, part of them are in Luke. And the one in Matthew takes you from Jesus Christ right back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And all you have to do is just go back and add up the years because the Bible gives you how long they lived. And you know what? Voila. By doing that and just figuring the genealogies in the Bible, he puts Adam and Eve in the garden 4004 B.C., a little over 6,000 years ago. It's not complicated. And I must say this. Up to about 150, maybe 200 years ago, Usher's chronology was the accepted chronology of the world. Your old Schofield reference Bibles had it in. You wouldn't find it in your Bibles now unless you get one of the ones that uh, are, are a good study Bible, like we sell in a bookstore. And it's a thing where, you know, Adam and Eve were in the garden at 4004 B.C. And God's dealing with man on earth will run from that date for 6,000 years. And then the 7,000 year would be the millennium. Now, if that's true, and it is, then according to our time in history, with the way we record history. The rapture should have happened in 1993. And then the millennium would have started around 2000. But it didn't happen. Now why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, God most probably is not going by a calendar that the Roman Catholic Church come up with. The calendar that we work today is, was put together by Pope Gregory in 1582. He didn't like the way it was going, so he changed the calendar, and through that, 
we probably don't have the exact time and the exact date. And certainly, I am telling you right now, God would not be counting his day based on the Roman Catholic Church and their calendar. I can promise you that. The second reason is in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, context being the second coming of Christ, he tells us clearly that God can change the times and the seasons as he sees fit. You see an example of this back in the book of Judges, one of the great, one of the great contradictions in the Bible by scholars is the book of Acts and the book of Judges. When they count up the time that they are dealing, God is dealing with them, Acts and Judges, the numbers don't match. In fact, there is a missing 93 years between the two. Now, the scribes and the scholars today tell us that that the scribe made a mistake, and that's an inaccurate mistake in your Bible. Well, we know that that's not true, so when you go back to the book of Judges, and you'll find one of the greatest things you'll ever study, when you start seeing the times that they disobeyed God, and God puts them into captivity under the Moabites, under the Egyptians, under all of those other nations back there, he gives you how many years they were out of fellowship and how many years they didn't serve God. And lo and behold, when you add them up, it's 93 years. In other words, here it comes. God didn't count the time that they were out of fellowship. <laughs> That's scary. That's scary. Now, either way, when God does his work to establish his kingdom, whenever that may be, and we know the times and the seasons, it's close. We know that it'll be right on his calendar on the right date and the right time, not necessarily ours. Now, the seven-day concept will be taught all through your Bible. And I said, it's like the woman in travail, in Genesis chapter 1, now you'll want to see this. This is where God establishes the first pattern to show you that. In Genesis chapter 1, when God created everything, he does it in six days and he rests on the seventh. Genesis chapter 1 is probably the greatest key. I've had people ask me, you know, and they're younger Christians and that, and I get it. And they'll say, you know, it's kind of confusing. It says that on the seventh day, God rested. Was he tired? Did he need a nap? No, no, no. He's showing us the pattern of sevens by his own act of creation. Did you ever notice that when he creates the first day in Genesis 1-5, it says the evening and the morning were the first day? In Genesis 1-8, the second day, the evening and the morning were the second day. And the third one, Genesis 1-13, the evening and the morning were the third day. And the fourth one in Genesis chapter 1, verse 19, the evening and the morning were the fourth day. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 23, the evening and morning were the fifth day. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, the evening and morning were the sixth day. And lo and behold, when you come to chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, when he makes the seventh day, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished from all the host of them. 
And the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, set it apart, because in that he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. You know what you got? You got 6,000 years of man on this earth with the evening and the morning. The 7,000 year, the, se- the seventh day, you won't find the evening and the morning was the seventh day. You know why? It's God's eternal day. Picture the millennium. And all you got to do is go to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and it's laid out so clearly how that the rest here in Genesis chapter 2 is the millennial reign of Christ, God's rest for not only his work, earth, for the nation of Israel. God's eternal day, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, of the increase of that government and peace, there shall be no end, no night or day anymore. And he showed you that seventh-day pattern before you went one chapter in the Bible. Now, you'll remember, a couple of weeks ago, I showed you how that Noah was on the ark, opened the window, and sent the blackbird and the, and the dove out. Remember that? Remember how I told you that he waited seven days between the times he took it back and sent it out again? Same picture. Revelation chapter 20, probably the greatest chapter on God establishing the millennium, it runs down through that chapter six times, 1,000, 1,000, 1,000, six times. And then the seventh time goes into the millennium, just so you wouldn't miss it. Now, scholarship will and would go crazy with this idea. The Bible colleges would say, well, you're absolutely crazy and nuts to believe that. Really? Really? Well, David Gregory, who was the math professor at Oxford in 1710, wrote a work on it, and he's right on the money with the 7,000 years. Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book, The Coming Prince, probably the greatest book ever written on the Antichrist. He wrote it in 1900. Got the date right on the money. 7,000 years. George Wilson, 1887, figured it out. His work ran 1,055 pages, 685,000 words, and has never been refuted in over 150 years. You're hanging out with the wrong crowd. Now, once we have established and you understand the seven-day period based on one day with the Lord is 1,000 years and 1,000 years one day, we also have a three-day system. And this brings us back to John chapter 2, the third day. Now listen carefully. Where the seven-day system will run from Genesis to Revelation, 7,000 years, our three-day system will run from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ into the millennium, 3,000 years or three days. Two systems. Now let's lay it out. You will find this system taught throughout the Old Testament. Take your Bibles and turn over to Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. This is the definitive chapter on your third day. You want to mark this in your Bible. Hosea is a minor prophet. He's Mexican. He's a minor prophet, and his whole book, as all the minor prophets, are all focused, and the theme of every one of the minor prophets and the major prophets is the day of the Lord. And in Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, look what he says. And this is your definitive passage on the third day. Remember now, the first seven-day period runs from Genesis up to 
the millennium, book of Revelation, seven days, 7,000 years, with the seventh one being the rest. The three-day system starts with Christ, the first coming, runs up to the millennium, three days or 3,000 years, based on, based on 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. All right, let's read it. Come, let us return unto the Lord. Somebody's coming back to the Lord. You know who it is? Israel. For he hath torn, and he will heal us. He is smitten, and he will bind us up. Israel has just went through the tribulation period. They've been torn, they've been beat up, they've been smitten. Now look what he says. He will bind us up. When are you going to do that? Verse 2, after two days. See that thing? After two days, will he revive us? Here it comes. And the third day, he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. That's the second coming and going into the millennium. That's Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. Then when, on the third day, then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. He is going forth as prepared as the morning, second coming. And he shall come unto us as the rain, as in the latter and the former rain of the earth. There's a former and a latter rain, James chapter 5, which ushers in the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennium on the third day. You see how that thing works? There's two systems in your Bible on the day system. One is seven and one is three, and they are the key to figuring everything out in your Bible. Now, let's turn back to Exodus chapter 19 for a moment, and let's see it again. And we're going to read 20 verses here now, so stay with me. I mean, if you want to have some fun with the Bible, this is what we're doing. And I'm trying to break this down where anybody can grab it. Now, this chapter is a picture in the Old Testament story of the second coming of Christ. Now, watch watch everything here and look at the keys. Let's read it. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Now, let me just stop here and tell you, Sinai, when the Lord comes back at the second coming of Christ, Sinai is where he comes. That's where he met Moses back in Exodus. And when he comes back at the second coming of Christ, I've laid out the route of the second coming for you many, many times. He comes back to Sinai, comes up through the wilderness journey, the same path that Israel took when they journeyed, crosses over Gilgal, comes over the Jordan, winds up in the Mount of Olives. So the first thing we see is our key is Sinai. Let's go on. And they departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell their children of Israel. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice indeed, and keep my commandments, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You know what he just said there? He said that Israel is put in a place above every Gentile on this planet. They are a peculiar treasure. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, that couldn't be anything for you and me in the church because we're not a nation. We're a body. 
you're a holy body, the body of Christ. Israel is never a holy body, but they're a holy nation. Kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called all the elders of the people and laid before them faces all the words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud. Now, that's the second coming of Christ, according to the book of Acts chapter 1. That angel said, the same Jesus you see going up in a cloud, the same Jesus is going to come back in a cloud. You're told that in Joel. You're told that all through the Old Testament, that the day of the second coming of Christ, he comes back in a cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. Here it comes. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. Now, what's the deal with washing their clothes? I mean, come on. What is the deal with washing, uh, washing their clothes? I'll tell you why. Because in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, in the tribulation period, the nation of Israel has to wash their own garments. See how that thing fits? Verse 10, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. Tribulation period. Ah, here it comes. And be ready against the third day. There it is again. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. 3,000 years after Christ shows up, the beginning of that third day is the second coming of Christ. And thou shalt set the bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that you go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whatever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death, and shall not uh, a hand touch it. But he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. And when the trumpet soundeth long, uh, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down to the mountain of the people, and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. Look at this. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Ah, look at this. Come not at your wives, meaning have no sexual relationship with your wives. Now you say, what's that got to do with it? Because back there in, the, in, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 through 8, the tribulation saints are virgins, so they're not to come toward their wives. And there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceedingly loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mountain. Nether means lower, Old English. And when Mount Sinai was altogether on smoke, because the Lord had descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Second coming of Christ. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder, and louder, Moses spake, and God answered to him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, second coming, on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. In Revelation chapter 11, Moses and Elijah represent the tribulation saints. And when Moses goes up, they go up. I mean, it's 
undeniable if you're and, and look, uh, no Greek, no Hebrew. Just letting the Bible open itself up by establishing the context and following the third day concept. And you find all the key words here. You find the thunder and the lightning. You found the voice of a trumpet. And you find the cloud. And I, No, I got to tell you. This world, whether they know it or not, has to follow the Bible, even though they're as lost as a goose and going to wind up in the lake of fire. Why in the world, when Christ comes back in a cloud, first coming, he goes up in a cloud, second coming, he comes back in a cloud, all the way through the Bible, the cloud is a representation to God. And God has all the answers that man has, and everything that we have said and done is with him in that cloud. So, you got your iPhone, you got your computer, and you got your, all the information, and when you put it in there, they tell you it goes into a cloud. Boy, how true they are. You see, the world calls it a cloud that all your information is stored in of everything you say, do, and think. But that's just a model of the real cloud where everything you and I think and say and do is stored up there. When Christ comes back, it's going to come out of that cloud. John chapter 11. Just bear with me. We're in good shape time-wise. John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, we have the story of the raising of Lazarus. Now, I told you already that everything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is a picture of something, and every person represents something, and there's no difference here. Lazarus will be a picture of the nation of Israel. He's dead. Mary and Martha will be a picture of two types of Christian during the church age. And that's a great study in itself. We don't have time to get into this morning. So what you've got here is a picture of the church age where Israel is dead, Lazarus, and notice they're related to Lazarus. And Mary and Martha will picture the two types of Christians you have in Christianity. I wish I had time to develop that for you today. Now watch what happens in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, now that we have all the enlightenment that I've given you today on this. Now look at this. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold whom, uh, behold he whom thou lovest is sick. Now, I just got to stop here. and I don't know what you know about the Bible, but if I was coming through that right now, and I read that verse right there, it says, let me read again. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. First thing that would trigger me that I understand he's the type of the nation of Israel there's only two men in the New Testament that Jesus says he loves. Do you know that? One of them is Lazarus, who's a picture of the nation of Israel. The other one is the Apostle John, who's a picture of the church. Now, see, that would just jump out all over my face when I saw that. You've got to begin to read your Bible looking for things because nothing is in there by an accident. 
I read you John chapter 2, verse 1 this morning, and it says that there was a, I'm going to paraphrase this, there was a wedding in Cain of Galilee um, on the third day, and then it says at the end of that, and Jesus' mother was there. What in the world do I got to know that for? Everything's in there for a reason. We'll get into that one next time. So you got Lazarus, the type of the nation of Israel. God loves Israel. You got John, the type of the church. Christ loved the church. Only two men in the New Testament. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. You know, that is a great verse of whatever happens bad in your life. It's for the glory of God if you're a Christian. You get that? We are so defeatist today. We are so afraid that something bad is going to happen to us because it's going, to, it's going to shatter our little life. And yet you just were told right there that when this man died, his death wasn't unto death. It was for the glory of God because God was going to use it. See, I've often wondered how many things God could have done through us but we wouldn't allow him to because we're so afraid we're going to get coronavirus 19 or whatever the case it is or get this or get that and we're just so afraid. And God said, you know what? Maybe I could use that. Oh no, not me, Lord. Use him. Use her. But don't use me. I love it. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death. You think Jesus didn't know he was already dead? It's a great principle, and this is not even my message today, but I can't pass this up. It's a great principle that's showing you it ain't over till God says it's over. And when you say somebody died, God says it's it determined the miracle that God is going to do through it. Not about the circumstances of what happened. Ugh, we are so far from that. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary. Both of those are a type of the church. Now, here it comes. And when he had heard for that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that saith to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. See what he does? He shows up after two days. He goes to Lazarus, a type of the nation of Israel, on the third day, to give him life. Oh, and please, please, don't miss verse 7. Please don't miss verse 7. Then after that, say it to his disciples, let us go into Judea, which is in Jerusalem again. Second coming of Christ. He was there at the first coming. He's going back again to give life to Lazarus, the nation of Israel, on the third day. Now, do you catch things like that? It's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of discipline. When God wrote a book, he wrote a book that any imbecile could get it. I got it. It's not about how smart you are. It's certainly not about how smart you think you are and the education you have. It's how you're going to discipline yourself to a fortified structure. And when you understand the day system, seven over here, three over here, that's ten, and ten in your Bible is the number of the Gentiles, the church age. You now know 
you got a picture of something in John chapter 2 in this wedding in Cana. Now that we've got this established, the next time we're back together, you're going to get part two, and I'm going to show you that wedding. Now, this is how you simply use the Bible to open itself up and how you put your Bible together. It's not complicated, folks, but it takes discipline. It takes structure. This is a piece of your thousand-piece picture puzzle like my mom used to put together on New Year's Eve. All that I'm giving you today is the edging, the framework. And once you get these framework pieces in here, then you begin to build from the outside in to put the picture together. When it comes to the Bible, you never build things in your Bible from the inside out. And that's what everybody does. That's where most people make their mistake when it comes to the Bible. You have to, to learn your Bible, you have to establish a disciplined framework in three areas. You have to discipline yourself before you delve into any passage, verse, or book to not go one inch into that study till you establish the right context. The second thing you're going to have to discipline yourself in is to look for key words. And the second thing you're going to have to have under your belt is what I've given you today, and you're going to have to have an understanding of God's time frame called the times and the seasons. Here in this church, we do a lot of things with the Bible. But I've never made the mistake in anything that I've taught you, whether it be in discipleship, one or two, Bible Institute, people ministry, or whatever. I always try to build everything, building a structure framework first, and then building from that outside in. That's the foundation that you get in Discipleship 1 and 2. It's the framework. When we got into Bible Institute, I began to teach all of the framework stuff first, and now we're doing the books. We're moving from the outside in. Then you build inward with that. That'll be Thursday night and Sunday morning, like today. Then getting you into the ministry with people, which is the next level, That will be the exercising of what you learn to develop through your, uh, to develop you completely. As he says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, I think it's 11, he's talked down there, he talks about, you know, exercising your senses to discern good and evil. In other words, you just can't get the Bible and do nothing with it. You've got to have a structure to the Bible, but that structure has to come all the way to the end that you take what you get and then you exercise yourself with it. And you exercise yourself with it by giving it out to other people. Building men and women in the Word of God, not, it's not hard, but it must have, it must have a, a completeness to it. There's three parts to that completeness. First of all, you've got to have a Bible process that works. 
wasting your time trying to get to St. Louis via India is not the way to do it. You have to have a Bible process that works. Second thing you have to have is you have to have a willing pastor who understands how to use that process and get it into your world and help you understand it as quickly as you can. But then you need a willing people who see and understand what he has and understands that there's only one way you're going to get that. And then through all of that, you have to discipline yourself to a structure that is going to lend itself to a process by which you're going to get everything God wants you to have the way he wants you to have it in the timely manner that you can put the pieces together to build the picture puzzle. And today you got an enormous piece of your Bible puzzle. My suggestion to you is you go home and sometime this week, if you have some time, sit down and, and make sure you understand every piece of this and then put it into your Bible. That by next Sunday or next Thursday, if somebody would ask a question about this something here, that you could raise your hand and say, I'd like to answer that because I put it all together this week. Let me have a shot at it. It's all yours. That's how you learn. That's how you learn. Well, we'll hold up there.